If you're visiting with us this morning or you find yourself here this morning without a Bible, we sure want you to have a Bible to follow along with us. Just raise your hand. There are men that are coming down the aisle right now and they'll be happy to turn one over to you so you can follow along and make sure that I'm saying everything I'm supposed to be saying in the sermon. Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and uh, every step of the way is uh, just beauty. I mean, it's tragic beauty in some respects and, and, uh, and, and also look at it today, but God is able to bring something beautiful even out of a bad situation and that's what's going to happen here. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and uh, having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. And likewise, the Second brother married her, he died, the third even to the seventh. And last of all, the poor woman died. And therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all were married to her. And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Number one, not knowing the scripture, and number two, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what, which, that, what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes who were witnessing this heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So let's... Pray together. Lord, we pray that we would never ever turn to this book and lose the ability to be astonished by your teaching and what you do. And just be in awe, Lord, of your revelation, of your nature, of your word and your teaching. We count it a privilege this morning to know you as our Savior, Jesus, to know you as our friend. And we want to know you better and better. And we know one of the ways that you've given that to, to us is through your word. And so we pray that your spirit would be very active in this place now and just giving us a revelation of your heart and your mind behind this passage. We pray for each man and woman that stands before you right now that doesn't know you yet. They don't have a personal relationship with you. And Lord, you know that that's what you're wanting to draw them into. That's the whole reason that they're here, Lord. And we pray that you would speak to them today from your word and bring them into your family. And we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our passage this morning, Jesus as we've seen in recent weeks, and it will be the case for the next few weeks, is just within a few days of his death upon the cross. His popularity is just tremendous among the common people. And it is a popularity that is literally growing by the day as he is teaching and present there in the city of Jerusalem. His popularity is in to the proportion that his popularity is growing. It is at the expense of the Jewish religious systems of the day and the Jewish uh, religious sects were losing power to him by the day, principally uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. And so threatened by his growing popularity, each one of them in turn tries to catch Jesus in a public setting when he is teaching his disciples in order to pose a question to him that he will flub in some way or that he'll kind of falter before, give a wrong answer and then uh, uh, the people that are following him realize they don't like that answer and it will uh, divide his supporters and blunt his growing popularity. 
Last week we examined the unsuccessful attempt by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to trap Jesus, and this week we'll examine the unsuccessful attempt by the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Herodians tried to stump Jesus with a political question. The Pharisees come to Jesus this morning by trying to trap him concerning a theological question. I think it's good to begin with understanding who and what these Sadducees were. Generally, they were very, very rich, very, very powerful men, very highly educated. And though they were lesser in number than the Pharisees, they were much more powerful as a sect than the Pharisees. Almost always in Jewish history up to this point in time, it was a Sadducee who was the high priest. And whoever had the high priest had the money and had the power. And almost always the Sadducees had the money and they had the power. And in this whole thing of what Judaism had become in that day, it wasn't unlike what uh, political parties are today. And once they have power, they know how to do things to shift resources uh, even unfairly in their direction in order to hold on to power. And this same kind of thing was happening religiously in, in those days. Concerning their theology or their religious beliefs, they were the modernists of their day. They were the religious liberals of their day. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. They didn't believe in the existence of spirits. They didn't believe in the existence of demons. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They questioned the immortality of the soul, whether there was life to be lived after death. They were the rationalists of their day. They were the materialists of their day. They wanted to be religious on some level, but without having to believe in anything supernatural. If it couldn't be explained by natural law, then they rejected it. If they couldn't feel it, if they couldn't see it, if they couldn't hear it, if they couldn't smell it, if they couldn't taste it, and most importantly, if they could not understand it, they rejected it as, as something that, uh, that they did not want to believe in. Now, all of this sounds, in our kind of modern age today, sounds very, very intellectual and very, very enlightened on the surface. But the simple fact of the matter is that such a person is engaged in the worship of their minds. And just, and thus the worship of the limitations of their minds. The fact of the matter is that each of our minds, and thus our understanding, is very finite. It is very, very limited. If I can understand something fully, it means that that something or that someone is smaller than my mind. And if it's smaller than my mind, it's smaller than me. And if it's smaller than me, then it's not worthy of my worship. Why would I worship anyone or anything that is less than me? I'll go ahead and worship myself. If that's the case, don't need much prodding related uh, to that. And so it's completely illogical, the position that the Sadducees took, which is why they were Sadducee. Well, you know, I mean, it's an old joke, but everyone has a right to hear it once, right? I'm ashamed of myself for having said it, but in a perverse way, I enjoy it. I, uh, I don't like long, drawn-out, uh, funny jokes. Give me just a stupid thing, but say it in 15 seconds and get out of my face. So I like this stuff that just moves right along and all, however bad it might be. So... What the Sadducee and the theological liberal, both then and now, uh, must come to recognize that it is that a God that is small enough to understand is not big enough to worship. Again, I would be worshiping a God that's smaller than myself. 
Any time you have the finite, us, in relationship with the infinite, God, you're going to have to get used to mystery concerning any subject that we would want to engage God on after we have hit the limit of our understanding related to that subject, God's knowledge of the subject goes infinitely beyond that. We use a phrase today to describe something that disappears or it ceases to exist as it relates to our eyes as being the vanishing point. When I was a kid, they would take these vehicles that they would make automobiles for the most part some of them were like rocket automobiles and they would take them out to the Bonneville salt flats in Utah 30,000 acres of just flat land just barren land and they would crank these vehicles up and and uh, just let her rip and year after year they would come up with something bigger and better and more powerful and break the land speed record for uh, automobiles. And so it was a perfect place, 30,000 acres of flatness. Now if you were to go out there in August, middle of summer, all of that heat rising up off of that surface in the middle of the day so that as you look out into the distance you see that distortion and that waviness that the heat produces and all and you gave someone a eight foot high pole with a large orange flag on the end of it and you said to your friend I want you to just walk out and keep on walking till I can't see you uh, any longer and they would begin to walk and begin to walk and begin to walk and there would become a moment in time where you would still see him, you would still see that orange flag, and yet they would take one more step and they disappear. That's called the vanishing point in, in life. You drive a stake into the ground at that point and that is your vanishing point. Though the Bonifil salt flats would stretch way beyond the limitations of your eyesight, way beyond the limitations of your vanishing point. And what's true of the human eye is also true of the human mind. You take any subject of your choosing, carry your understanding out as far as you can. You plant a stake right there at your vanishing point, and then realize that God's understanding of that same issue goes infinitely beyond that. I grew up as a kid and they used to run advertisements on the television by the United Negro Fund had a statement that they would make, a mind is a terrible thing to waste, and it is. But the Bible teaches us uh, equally so that it's also a terrible thing to worship. And that's what the Sadducees did, and many do it to this day. Again, a God that is small enough to understand is not big enough to worship. That is the choice that everyone faces concerning God. You cannot have it both ways. The question that they pose to Jesus is an interesting one, and they precede their question with a hypothetical situation that has an Old Testament background that we need to understand a little bit about to be able to understand what they're posing to the, to, to the Lord. The law of Moses taught that if a Jewish man married a wife and he were to die prematurely before um, they were to have children and specifically have a son, uh, in order that his name would not die out in the history of Israel and be lost in, in Israel's history, the law allowed for the fact, and indeed commanded it, that his nearest blood relative, which would typically be a younger brother, who was eligible to do so, would then marry this widow and go in unto her and raise up a son who would then be named after the deceased father, and it would accomplish two things. Number one, the name of the deceased brother 
would continue to live in Israel's history. That was very important to the Jews. More important to them than it is to many of us today. The second thing is, by virtue of her having a son, she now had a means of support in her old age. In those days, your children were your social security in your old age. And so it would accomplish a couple of of uh, Im- important uh, things. And so here is this hypothetical that uh, one brother marries this uh, woman and then he dies and then the next brother marries her and he dies and so forth and so forth through uh, seven brothers until they've all been married to her and then ultimately they all die. And then they follow the hypothetical with the, with the question in the resurrection, verse 28, whose wife of the seven will she be for they were all married to her now their motive in asking this question is an interesting one because they did not believe in the resurrection they're resorting to ridicule in the public debate and ridicule is a very very powerful uh, way to uh, engage in public debate and they're, they're using ridicule here in an effort to make a belief in the resurrection, a belief in a life after this one to appear foolish. They wanted to make it appear that there cannot be an afterlife because it would create so much confusion and it would create so much strife on on so many practical levels, including marriage. How in the world could heaven be heaven? If only one of them can be married to her in heaven. And what do the other six do? They're without a wife forever in heaven. And they look over and they see the lucky brother that's got a wife for eternity. And they don't have a wife for eternity. And so they're really just mocking the idea of of resurrection and the complications that it introduces into man's belief and, and system. Now, Jesus' response to their attempt to trap him, verses 29 to 32. First of all, in verse 29, Jesus publicly, all of this is happening publicly, by the way, he publicly declares them to be mistaken. I like it in the old King James, you do err. (laughs) When he said to the Sadducees, you do err in public, you could have heard a pin drop at that point. If there was anybody sleeping during the sermon at that moment in time, they all woke up. It was like everybody does for a joke or a funny story today. But anyway, I mean, everybody's eyes got really big. Everybody was wondering what in the world is going to happen because nobody told these people that they were wrong about anything. And so this would have been an insult to them, like a slap, uh, you know, spiritual slap across the face and Jesus really has their full attention at this point not only the people but the Sadducees themselves he then declares them to be wrong verse 29 on the basis of two great ignorances in their thinking and in their life first he said they were mistaken due to their ignorance of the scriptures and second they were mistaken because they were ignorant of the power of God Then in verse 30, he addressed their immediate question. And Jesus explained to them that in the life to come in heaven, there won't be any marriage. But then in heaven, we are going to, as Christians, we're going to be like angels in this regard. And angels don't marry, and neither will we. Now this whole idea of not being married in heaven to our husbands and wives, uh, who are husbands and wives on earth, this is very, very disappointing news to many, to many people. Very exciting news to another group of, of people who were wondering how in the world heaven could be heaven if we remain in this uh, current state of affairs. Just kidding. You see, the Sadducees were mistaken because nowhere in the Bible does it teach that the husband-wife relationship in this life will be continued in the life to come? That was an assumption on their part. It has carried the one from the earth in, in, into heaven. It was a wrong uh, assumption. It went way beyond the revelation of the Scriptures. 
in heaven there's not going to be a need for marriage on the physical level because there isn't going to be a need for procreation. Nobody dies in heaven. Nobody dies in eternity. And so there won't be a need for repopulation of any kind. And so uh, because there's no death there, uh, that's not required. Additionally, there won't be any need for marriage on an emotional level or on an intellectual level because all of us, male and female, the single great focus of heaven is going to be our personal relationship with the Lord. The Bible teaches that in heaven, and even now, but in, in heaven, He is our groom and we are His bride. Everything will be about that relationship. And no one will look, I'm wonderfully and happily married to my wife Karen. But I have, I have, it, it doesn't boggle my mind in any way that we'll be able to recognize one another in heaven one day and to watch her in just the glory of heaven, worshiping and enjoying the Lord Jesus on every level and feeling that she's missing anything or that I'm missing anything because we're no longer in a married state uh, there. The blessings of that relationship with the Lord in heaven is, is going to cause even the greatest of blessings in the most wonderful of marriages that the world has ever known. I'm not talking about ours at the moment, but it's going to cause that to pale in comparison. So we don't know a lot about heaven. We know a lot, but there's a lot that we don't know. But one of the things that we do know is that it's going to be immeasurably superior to what we know uh, now on every level. Now notice, though, that Jesus does not say that we're going to be angels in heaven. A lot of times people read the passage a little carelessly, and they say, well, Jesus says we're going to be angels in heaven. Sometimes you're at a funeral or something, and you'll hear people say, well, now they're just an angel up in heaven looking down on us and all. No, they're not angels in heaven. Uh, they're saints in heaven. And then angels are something entirely uh, uh, different. And so... Uh, we're going, he says we're going to be like angels in a specific area, not in every way, but in the specific area of being unmarried. It's also very cute, if you can use cute uh, for Jesus. Um, but in, in his answer to them, he speaks of resurrection as an indisputable fact. He said, in the resurrection... And then he openly speaks of the existence of angels. In his response, he speaks of resurrection. He speaks of angels, both of them as, as being a well-known fact, and they didn't believe in either of them. And so he's made it very clear to them where he stands on the issue of the supernatural and, and on the issue of, of angels and resurrection. Then in verses 31 and 32, he addressed their larger uh, point of view, and he does this for free. He answers their question, and then he's going to try and get them to think about their theological uh, positions that don't allow for the supernatural and all. He's going to try and get them to rethink that and enlarge their thinking on the basis of, of the Scriptures. He's still trying to get through to these people, still wants to get through uh, to them, even though they're planning his, his death at the moment. So he addressed their larger... Uh, I don't believe in resurrection theological position. And he quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 to them, uh, where he says, I am the God, God, and quoting from there, it is the Lord declaring, I am the God, I am, present tense. It doesn't say, I was the God of, Abra of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, And then he plainly declares that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the point that he's making here is that the events that are recorded in the book of Exodus occurred hundreds of years after the death of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet in the book of Exodus, God spoke of them not as being dead, but he spoke of them as being alive. God did not say again, I was, past tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But rather he said, hundreds of years after their death, 
I am, present tense, currently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then in order that the point wouldn't be lost on them, Jesus declared to them the obvious conclusion from the passage that if God was in a current, present tense relationship with them hundreds of years after their death, then there must be a resurrection from the dead. When a person dies, he continues to exist. There must be life after death. And so if the patriarchs are still alive, then there is resurrection. Now, one of the things that's amazing in this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees is that the Sadducees did not consider the entirety of the Old Testament to be authoritative. They only gave uh, weight, authoritative weight from God to the Torah, to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They did not give any kind of weight to anything uh, beyond that. The reason that it's interesting is that if you were dealing with a Pharisee uh, who gave great weight to uh, to the inspiration of God to the entirety of the Old Testament, you could have spoken to them about the proof of God's, uh, the proof of resurrection from the scriptures from zillions of places in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the strongest being Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, where the Bible declares, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, speaking of resurrection, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. But the Sadducees did not give any kind of authoritative weight to the book of Daniel or to the prophets, or to the Psalms. And so, what Jesus does here, is that he shows them that even the Torah, even the Pentateuch, those first five books of of the Old Testament, confirm the truth of the resurrection. He quotes to them proof of a biblical basis for the resurrection from the Pentateuch. If you are a Sadducee trying to trap Jesus on that morning, you ever been in a situation where all the blood goes out of your head and out of your face and you're just saying, I'm, I'm not here, I'm not experiencing this. They were having that kind of a moment. They're theologians for years had gone through those five books of Moses with a fine-tooth comb, and how in the world did they miss Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, so that we're standing here like idiots in front of Jesus, exposed by the crowd. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that He would give a biblical basis for resurrection from the Pentateuch. And yet he did. How embarrassing. In verse 33, when the multitudes, they were listening to this, it was like a bomb went off because they realized that what Jesus had done is that in two sentences he had completely dismantled an entire sect of Judaism in his day. In the quoting of one passage from the Scriptures. Well, the heads of the the Sadducees are spinning, and Jesus continues to pass his oral exams very well. A couple of applications before we close. The fact of the matter is that there are many, many Sadducees today, theological liberals is what they're called today, who refuse to accept the whole Bible as being inerrant, God-inspired, authoritative for what we believe, how we live, who refuse to accept all of the 
supernatural events and the realities of the Christian life that are recorded in the Bible as being true. They refuse to believe in the supernatural of this Christian life. They deny the divine inspiration of the Scriptures. They deny the inerrancy of the Scriptures, that it's without error. They explain away God's miracles. They deny the virgin birth. They deny His bodily resurrection three days after His death upon the cross. They deny the existence of sin. They deny the Bible's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. They deny the reality of a future judgment before God. They deny the existence and the reality of hell. They deny the triunity of God. They deny the deity of Christ, the fact that He is, was and is God in human flesh, and on and on and on we could go. And the Sadducees are very much alive and well, so to speak, and powerful in our day. But Jesus looks at them, and he plainly declares them to be wrong. And he identifies the two causes of their error, both then and now. And it all gets traced back to these two things. Number one, he said to them there, in verse 29, they did not know the Scriptures. The Sadducees knew parts of the Bible. They knew bits and pieces of the Bible. What they didn't know was the whole Bible. They accepted and glommed on to what they liked. They rejected and dismissed what they didn't like. Bits and pieces here and there, and, and that's how uh, their Christian life was, so to speak, was, was lived and how they handled the Scriptures. Do you know the Bible? <laughs> Do we know the Bible this morning? personally, individually? Or do we just know bits and pieces here and there? One section here, maybe four verses from Romans, maybe eight verses from Ephesians, maybe half a chapter from the book of Revelation. Or do we know the whole Bible is Christians from Genesis to Revelation? We don't live in the same country that existed a hundred years ago spiritually or existed fifty years ago or twenty years ago. We live in a country that has changed dramatically spiritually speaking concerning the Bible, the understanding of the Bible and building definitions of right and wrong based upon the Bible. We live in a time for Christianity in this nation, where it is, going, it is important for us to know the whole Bible for ourselves and not be content to just know this section or that section and then not know entire sections uh, of, of the Bible. We need to know the Bible more than ever. And the knowledge of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is disappearing. By the day, it's disappearing. I met with a woman who was in a convalescent hospital and she was convalescing from a major surgery. We were talking about the things of the Lord. She's in her 70s. And she had known about the Lord for decades. Now, this isn't, I'm not going to do a pep rally for Calvary Chapel Modesto. But she said something to the equivalent of, she said, do you know where my breakthrough came in my personal relationship with God occurred, and she has a very deep and personal relationship with God. 
She said, it was when I started attending Calvary Chapel and studying the Old Testament. And she said, it taught me a respect and a fear and a reverence for God that I never had before. And out of that, my relationship with Him exploded in terms of its intimacy. Now you would think going into the Old Testament, I mean, it would be some kind of a terrible experience for someone wanting to, wanting to know intimacy with God and the greatness of, of God's grace and His love and all, but it, it, it isn't true. It, as the old saying goes, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The Old Testament does its thing. The law does its thing. The Psalms does its thing. The, pro the prophets does its thing. The Gospels does its thing. The epistles do their thing in our lives. And it takes the whole mixture of all of them to produce within us the Christianity that God wants us to have, to be complete and not the least of which to protect us from the air that is all around us as Christians, and it's not going away, and that is the air of liberalism or of, of Sadduceeism. I, I don't think it's a bad idea in this vein for all of you who attend this church to understand what goes on in my noggin in the preparation of a Bible study or the delivery of the Bible study. What is most important to me of all is that you like me. <laughs> and I want you to always feel good. Now there are passages in the Bible that are pure encouragement. And they are meant to be strong, strong encouragement and feel good in our spirit passages for difficult times. And there are other passages in the Bible that are strong rebukes and warnings against sin and the importance of repentance if I find myself in sin. You know, there are times when feeling bad feels good in the life of a child of God. God's chastening feels good when I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And those passages do a good thing. The way that I see it is that every single passage in the Bible is there for a reason. I realize if God wanted to share everything that was on his mind or even some small portion of it, the Bible says that if every event of Jesus' public ministry and his teaching was recorded, the earth couldn't contain the books. Do you realize you'd have to rent a U-Haul to bring your Bible to church every week? If So I look at this as a condensed form. I mean, it's complete and what we need to know this side of heaven and all of that. But there's a reason for every sentence. There's a reason for every section. And I feel that if we can just discover what is the lesson of this passage, why is this passage in the Bible and learn what the reason is for that passage and then how it applies to our Christian lives, well, I feel then we've made a friend of that passage to each one of us for the rest of our lives. So that if any of us ended up on a deserted island with nothing else to read but the Bible, we would be able to open up that book and be able to say, I remember that passage. This is the point of that passage. And as we will remember the lesson of that passage, the great truth that it reveals to us about our God, that it would warm our spirits and that it would encourage our hearts. And I feel that if that happens, then we've had a successful time in worshiping the Lord in the study of His Word. That's the purpose and that's the goal to me. Now, number two problem that they had is that they did not know the power of God. Do you realize that God personally stands behind 
every promise that He gives in this book. He stands behind every command that He gives in this book. Every line, every paragraph, every word, every jot, every tittle, He stands behind everything that's in this book. He never gives us a promise or a commandment except that He gives us the supernatural ability to claim that promise. To be able to obey that commandment that He has given to us. I remember committing my life to the Lord back in 1980. And I was very, very motivated in my walk with the Lord and a desire to serve the Lord. But I had a lot to learn about the power of God, about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I've been raised in my youth in a Christian church that strongly emphasized the importance of knowing the Word of God. It was a church that had a great respect for the Word of God. And that was built into my life, and I carry that respect, thankfully carry that respect uh, for the Word of God to this day. It never left me. But the church lacked any kind of emphasis upon the supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. That it's impossible to live the life that is described on these pages in our own natural abilities and strength. They would have been helpful to know. So when I finally settled the issue of Jesus' Lordship in my life and committed my life to the Lord, I was determined to do Him proud with all of my human strength and all of my effort, and I failed majestically. <laughs> Miserably, I failed. And I mean, I tried and I tried and I tried, and the more I tried, the more I failed. And I understood perfectly the Apostle Paul's cry of frustration in Romans chapter 7. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I practice. And his great frustration was how to perform what is good. He would read the Bible. He would understand the commandments of Christ and all of these things. And he says, I see that it's good. I want to do that. I want to be that. What I lack is the ability, the how, the power to live this life. In that same Romans chapter 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Paul said, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. Amen, Paul. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. And then finally, realizing that he could not live this Christian life in his own strength, he cries out for help that's beyond him in order to do so. That same Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to speak of the who, who would deliver him in Romans chapter 8, a chapter that is filled with revelation and instruction concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. Behind the what of God's Word, behind every encouragement, behind every exhortation, every command, is the how of God's Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul spoke of it, or Peter spoke of it in this way, Second Peter chapter 1. He said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The Apostle Paul spoke of it this way in writing to the church at Philippi, For it is God who worketh in you. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit that gives us the desire to obey God's word and to claim his promises and then gives us the ability to obey his word and to claim his promises. And without knowing this, the Bible becomes a complete frustration. It seems to set this impossible standard before us that we're to try and live up to in our strength, which we can't do. And so pretty soon we don't want to turn to the Bible because all it does, it seems, is to mock us in our lack of power. Christianity is not attempting to imitate Christ and the strength of my flesh. Christianity is the imparting of God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit into each and every one of our lives to provide us with the how of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the what of His Word. And I think that very often today, Christians are forced to choose between having a knowledge of the Scriptures or having a faith in the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is a church that puts a great emphasis upon the teaching of the Word of God, and all of that is wonderful, but they fail to emphasize the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit the miracles of the Bible, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As, as we read it in the Bible, they will declare that all of this has disappeared in the first century, and thus God's people are then taught not to expect that kind of dynamic Christian life today. And so they don't, and they become very, very deep theologically, but very frustrated in terms of their practical daily Christian lives because while they're being very well versed in the what of God's of the Christian life, they're not also being taught the how. And then equally frustrating, there's another church, the other end of the spectrum, which speaks of nothing else but the Holy Spirit and the power of God. But they fail to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. And thus people are all fired up to do something, but they don't know what kind of life God is empowering them to live. They're massively well-versed in the how, but absolutely deficient in the what. The problem is that we need both to mature. A knowledge of the Scriptures, a faith in the power of God. And God wants us to have both. And only then will we experience Christianity as Christ intends. How to avoid the tragic error of the Sadducees in this hour in human history. And it swallows up a lot of people. Number one, we need to know our Bibles from one end to the other and not believe that that is something that is to be true of some kind of an extraordinary Christian but that it is to be true of every Christian. And then number two, to believe that the supernatural of God stands behind every command, every promise, every exhortation, every 
encouragement. Every chapter, every paragraph, every line, every word, and every jot, and every tittle. And then, my, what a Christian life opens up to us. For those of you who sit here today and you have not yet made Christ your Savior, all of this begins there. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service that have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would love to answer your questions this morning and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for. And then give you a Bible, give you some literature to help you get started in that relationship with the Lord. For those of us who know the Lord and we love the Lord already, I think the challenge and the encouragement of the passage are evident to continue to grow deeper and deeper in our knowledge of the Word of God, not just for the sake of knowing the Word of God as some kind of a technical book, but because it is, it is the supreme way by which we can know the God that we love so much better. It is the surest way. If you sit here today and, and you say, this power has got me licking my spiritual lips. This power to live this life. I am massively equipped on the what and I am dying on the how level. The Bible says that we can receive as full of an experience with the Holy Spirit as we want and we're willing to ask for. Jesus said, if we as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to our children, and we do, how much more will our heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Has He come upon your life to give you the power, not just born again, but upon your life to give you the power to live this Christian life? Or have you given your life to the Lord? And I'm not rebuking anyone. But have you given your life to the Lord and you say, I love Him. The, the will to do, like Paul, it's there. I want, I, I'm so thankful to Him. All of this is there inside of me. But I can't speak of six months or six years or six weeks of a victorious Christian life that I have lived in all the years that I've known Christ. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And God will be happy to baptize you with the Holy Spirit this morning just for the asking. And these same men and women would love to pray with you for that baptism with the Holy Spirit. Those of you who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, When's the last time you asked to be refilled? Well, I think it was in summer of 1978. Too long. I think it was last Sunday. Too long. Need to be refilled continually with the Holy Spirit. Try, I mean, I don't know about you, but my life is completely different today than it was two days ago. I can't live off of what I asked for and received two days ago. I need a fresh filling today. And it's there for the asking. Day, night, any circumstance, any temptation, anything that we're facing. What a God we serve with what He's, he's given to us freely to just ask as His children. And He'll lavish it upon us. The importance of knowing the Word. And the importance of being confident in the power of God in our lives and in his stand behind his word in each of our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray.